Amen. Our second reading this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I will read this in the English Standard Version. Hear the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? What does Paul mean when he writes, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? As Protestants, we emphasize that we are saved by faith and not by works. So when we come upon a passage of Scripture that says, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, alarm bells go off. If we're saved by faith and not by works, how can we continue to work out our own salvation? And why with fear and trembling? Is the outcome uncertain? Might we not work hard enough or well enough and lose our salvation in the end? Is there a chance That we might be believing, baptized Christians, that we might spend our lives in the faith trying to do all the right things, trying to avoid doing all the wrong things. And then when we get to the pearly gates, St. Peter tells us, I'm sorry, I just don't see your name on my list. Is that what Paul is telling us? Before his conversion, Martin Luther was busy working on his own salvation in fear and trembling. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. He was a professor of theology. He understood that God's wrath is poured out on all unrighteousness. And he was painfully aware that he was a sinful, unrighteous man. Luther spent hours and hours in the confession booth trying to unburden himself of every sin that he could remember, fearful that he had forgotten some past sin, dreading that perhaps he didn't fully understand all of his sins, and scared to death that he would die with some unconfessed, unrepented, unshriven sin still on his record, and that he would be damned. You have to admire Martin Luther for taking these things seriously, He certainly wasn't a lazy Christian. 
But a revolution happened in Luther's life. He was teaching a class at the seminary on the book of Romans, and he was studying that book carefully. And in his own study, the gospel came alive for Luther in a way that it had never had before. And he understood for the first time just how it is that we're saved. How it is that we stand before God, justified and righteous. Luther writes at length about this conversion that he experienced. The short version of the story is that for long years, Luther hated the righteousness of God. Luther tells us that explicitly, that he hated the righteousness of God because he understood the righteousness of God to be the active righteousness by which God is righteous and God punishes unrighteous sinners. For years, God's righteousness was nothing but the threat of punishment for a man who knew that he was not righteous in himself. Paul writes in Romans 1.17, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther hated that righteousness because he knew that he didn't have it. But one day, the light dawned on Luther, a dawning which he called his personal rebirth. And Luther understood that this righteousness of God is a, quote, passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, end quote. Rather than being God's threat against us, it is God's gift to us. And that's a huge difference. Luther understood that by faith we receive passively and not as the result of our own good works that we receive a righteousness from God. The righteousness is God's. It belongs to God's. It is a righteousness that we receive in faith and that gifted righteousness then stands us in good stead with God. The righteousness that we receive from God places us into a state of grace. By faith, we receive the righteousness which justifies us and which saves us. It is by this imputed righteousness of Christ that we are justified and made sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're not in a state of grace because of a righteousness that we have produced by our efforts Rather, we are saved because of a righteousness that God credits to us, that he imputes to us. And that is a free gift which we can receive by faith. This happens through what we sometimes call the double exchange. In our conversion from being lost sinners to being saved Christians, two things happen at the same time. By faith in Jesus Christ, we first repent of our sins and give them to Christ who atoned for our sins by his death on the cross. And second, we receive from Christ his record of perfect righteousness. We give Christ our sin and Christ gives us his holiness. A double exchange. That's what it means to be united to Christ in faith. Two verses 
capture this idea very clearly. First and second Corinthians we read. This is second Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This one verse captures the double exchange. Our sin is placed on Christ at the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus' death on the cross is a just payment for the sins of the world. Though Jesus himself was innocent, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And as a result in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. By union with Christ through faith, the perfect sinless righteousness of Jesus becomes our own. Not that we did all those good things ourselves. Not that we rejected all those temptations to sins that we've encountered. But Jesus did. Jesus has a perfect record. And by union with him, we receive credit for what it is that he has accomplished. Christ receives our sin and we receive his righteousness. That's a double exchange. Now, that doesn't sound fair by the standards of the world, of course, but that's the only way that we could be saved. And so that's what God does for us. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul reiterates that the righteousness that we have as Christians is not the result of our own labor, but that it comes from God himself. Paul writes, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The righteousness that we have as Christians is a righteousness that comes from God. It does not come from our efforts to follow God's law. When Luther understood this basic biblical truth, his world was transformed and a huge burden was lifted from his shoulders. He went from living in constant fear of God's righteous judgment to being lighthearted and giddy with the knowledge that he was in a state of grace, that he was accepted as a child of God, that he had nothing left to prove through his own efforts at keeping God's law. By union with Christ in faith, Luther had been relieved of all of his sins and he had received the robes of Christ's perfect righteousness. That's the only way to be saved. That is salvation. So with these basic gospel truths in mind, let's go back to our apparently troubling verse, Philippians 2.12, which admonishes us to continue to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In the next few minutes, I want to take a closer look at two parts of that verse, the fear and trembling part, and the workout part. And I want to offer a reading of those parts in keeping with the whole of the gospel, with the whole counsel of God. And then I want to reflect a bit 
on the following verse, verse 13, which moves from our justification onto our sanctification. So let me begin with verse 12. This is how it reads in the ESV translation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That final phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that final phrase, I would like to suggest, would be better translated in this way. With fear and trembling, live out or act out your own salvation. Let me give you the entire verse again in the Dan Morrison translation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, with fear and trembling, live out or act out your own salvation. Now, I've done two things in this revised translation. First, I moved the phrase with fear and trembling forward. And second, I replaced the verb work out with live out or act out. Let me begin with the first change. In the Greek, with fear and trembling comes before rather than after the verb. And so, in my translation, I simply copy uh, the Greek word order more closely. But more important than its position, let me talk about what this little phrase actually means. This phrase shows up in Scripture just three times, and each time is in a letter by Paul. Every time Paul uses this phrase, with fear and trembling, he's talking about the proper attitude that we should have toward obeying a command that has been given by someone in authority over us. Fear and trembling is Paul's way of naming the proper Christian attitude toward obeying a command given by someone who is in authority over us. One example, in 2 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says to the Corinthians that they received Titus, who was Paul's messenger, with fear and trembling. The Corinthian church, as you might recall, was in serious disorder. There were all kinds of bad things going on in that church. Both of the letters that we have in the New Testament, and there are a couple of more that have been lost, in both of those letters... uh, uh, that we have in the New Testament from Paul to that church, Paul is reading that church the riot act. He tells them what they're doing wrong and he tells them to straighten up. When the Corinthian church receives Titus with fear and trembling, it was because Paul was sending a blazing hot rebuke to the church by way of this man. Titus was the messenger carrying Paul's letter and so they received him with fear and trembling. Further, Paul, as the apostle who founded the church in Corinth, was thus in a position of authority over this church. He had the right to tell them what they needed to be doing. The fear and the trembling with which they received Titus is really a fear and a trembling in the face of the authority of Paul who was giving them orders that they need to obey. 
fear and trembling is Paul's way of naming the proper Christian attitude toward obeying a command given by someone in authority over us. Another example we see in Ephesians 6, 5, Paul writes this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. A bond servant or a slave obeys his earthly master with fear and trembling because his earthly master has power and authority over him. His fear and trembling have to do with obeying the person who has been placed in authority over him, which is precisely the same situation as Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth. Now the third use of this phrase we had in today's reading where Paul writes, therefore, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also more in my absence, with fear and trembling, live out or act out your own salvation. This third case is the same as the other two. Paul is telling the Philippians to obey the one in authority over them, to obey in fear and trembling. Now, these days we're not accustomed to having that kind of relationship with people in authority. We don't like anyone to have authority to tell us what to do. Somehow it offends our American sense of equality. But if an officer of the law pulls you over and tells you to step out of your car, my suggestion is that you obey him with fear and trembling. Now, that's never happened to me in my life, but there have been plenty of times in my life that I have been summoned to the principal's office. And I have obeyed that summons with fear and trembling, with a healthy respect for both the authority and the power of the one who has given me the command. Paul says to the church uh, at Philippi, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, with fear and trembling. The fear and trembling is the proper attitude toward obeying a command given by someone in authority over us. Okay, that's the easy part. Let's now go to the change in the translation of the verb that I have suggested, which is a little more complicated. Our ESV translation says, work out your own salvation. The word in Greek is katergatsethe, This is the only place, by the way, in the New Testament where this particular word appears, so we can't compare it with other passages. This is a present imperative verb, which means that it's a command to do something now. The root of the word erge does mean work. That's where we get the words ergonomic or the scientific unit of work, the erg. The only problem with this translation work out in English is that phrase has come to mean to work until you accomplish something. For example, when you work out a math problem, you work and you work and you work until you solve the equation. And once you work it out, the problem is done and you stop working. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul isn't saying work until your salvation is accomplished and then then stop working. He's saying, in fact, just the opposite. He's saying, you have been saved. Your salvation is accomplished. 
Now, live it out. Act it out. Work it out. Let your salvation unfold over the course of your life. The working out, the living out, the acting out is the consequence and not the cause of salvation. Let me say that again. The working out, living out, acting out is the consequence and not the cause of salvation. Not long ago, my wife became a U.S. citizen. As a citizen, she can act out, live out, work out her citizenship by voting. Voting doesn't make Ava a citizen, but being a citizen allows her to vote. She can live out, act out, work out her citizenship by casting a ballot. And she will do that with fear and trembling. Paul is saying that because the Christians at Philippi have been saved, they should live out, act out, work out their salvation. This is very important to understand. So how do we live out, act out, work out our salvation? Well, there are a whole bunch of ways. In fact, every single positive command in Scripture, every single place that God tells us how to live is an example of how to live out, act out, work out our salvation. In the passage that we're studying this morning, Paul mentions three ways. Let me read those for you again. Paul writes... Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Okay, so there are three ways of working out our salvation that Paul mentions there. Number one, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Number two, shine as lights in the world. And number three, hold fast to the word of life. Those are three examples of how we live out, act out, work out our salvation. The Bible is full of other examples. Each one of those examples is a kind of good work. It's a kind of righteous deed. We are to do these works and enact these deeds because we're saved. The problem arises when we try to do these works or enact these deeds in order that we might be saved. That would be backwards. In the middle school chapel at Valley Christian School this past week, I was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus gives many, many instructions about how to live. He gives many, many examples of good deeds and righteous actions that should be the consequence of our salvation, that should be the acting out, the working out, the living out of our salvation. The danger comes when we think that living the way that the Sermon on the Mount says we should live, that that will cause us to be saved. You know, do all the things that Jesus says you should do and then you'll be saved. That's the kind of thinking that drove Martin Luther to the brink of madness. That's the kind of thinking that drove the Pharisees to waste their lives in an endless treadmill of self-righteousness. Let me be totally clear about this. If living according to what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount is what saves us, then no one's going to heaven. 
No person hearing my voice has ever lived up to what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And anyone who thinks that the law of, that Jesus lays down in the Sermon on the Mount is somehow easier than the law of Moses or the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, well that person simply hasn't read the Bible. Moses' law is a thousand times easier than Jesus's. Listen to some of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or how about everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery? Or what about whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery? Or what about do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn also the other. And then there's the kicker, be perfect. As your heavenly father is perfect. If we think that we are saved by successfully living out the sermon on the mount, wow! We don't have a clue. We are not saved by the good things that we do. And the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount with its teaching of the law of Jesus is not to teach us a path to salvation, but is to make us aware of our desperate need for a Savior and His mercy. We are not saved by keeping the commandments, whether those be the commandments of Moses or the commandments of Jesus, because no one has ever kept the law. We are saved. We are only saved because God sovereignly chooses to save us. And having been saved, God then calls us to live out, to act out that salvation. Now please notice this. Not only does God save us, but God also is the one who then works in us so that we can act out, live out, and work out that salvation. Paul writes, For it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Not only does God justify us, God also sanctifies us. Having been saved, we live out, we act out, we work out that salvation by the power of God that is working in us. It's all God's grace. We're entirely dependent upon God's grace. And if we think that we are the agents or the creators of our own salvation or sanctification, then we have not yet been saved. If we think that we are the agents or the creators of our own salvation and sanctification, then we are still in deluded darkness. Let me close by clarifying the difference between being saved and not being saved. It's the important question. And then inviting you to think about where you stand with God. To be saved means to... Be rescued from the consequence of your own sin and to be restored to a relationship with God the Father. Those who are saved 
enjoy a special relationship with God during this life, and they will also spend eternity with God in the life to come. Jesus is crystal clear. Not everyone will be saved. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the road that leads to life is narrow and only a few find it, but that the road that leads to death is wide and it's chock full of people. That may sound grim, but that same assessment is repeated again and again in Scripture. In the passage that we read today from Philippians, Paul distinguishes the saved from the unsaved by talking about the relationship between the church at Philippi and the surrounding world. He describes the saved Christians as blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst, in a sea of a crooked and twisted generation. Those who are saved are just a few. And they are surrounded by, they are in the midst of a crooked and a twisted world. There is an important and a absolute difference between being saved and not being saved. What is the difference? Well, Jesus gives us a clue in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are saved are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus says that to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Which sounds like quite a problem, because the scribes and the Pharisees were very righteous people. They spent all of their time studying God's word. They were very careful about following every rule. They were full-time, professional, religious people. How can we be more righteous than them? Well, the answer is simple. We can't. At least not by our own efforts. But then here's the good news. By faith we receive Christ's perfect righteousness as our own. And when we receive the righteousness of Christ as a free gift, by faith, then our righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Our righteousness will be the same as the righteousness of Christ. We can't do it by ourselves, but God is willing to do it for us. And that's good news. We need God to give us his righteousness because we can never be good enough by ourselves. The only way for us to be saved is to trust in Christ and to not trust in ourselves. The good news of the gospel is that we do not have to earn our place in heaven. God offers it to us freely. We receive that gift by no longer placing our faith in ourselves or in our own goodness and instead placing our faith in Christ. And when that happens, we're saved. And the perfect righteousness of Christ becomes our own. If you're still counting on the fact that you're a pretty good person to put you in good standing with God, then I plead with you to give up the charade. You're not as good as you think you are. Give up your attempts to justify yourself. And instead, place your faith in Jesus. 
and in his atoning death on the cross and let that be your justification. When you do that, you receive a salvation that you can never lose. You receive a justification that will then begin to unfold in your lifelong sanctification. And after you receive that salvation, then you can hear the words of the Apostle Paul speaking directly to you. My beloved, with fear and trembling, live out, act out, work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would add your blessing to the proclamation of your word. We thank you for your deep, deep love for us. We thank you for uh, your willingness um, to be the righteousness that we couldn't be ourselves. And we thank you for the free gift uh, of that in Christ. We pray that you would give us the faith to cling to Christ alone. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.